You're listening to the Running in Production podcast, where developers and engineers talk about their tech stacks, lessons learned, and general tips from running web apps in production. Here's Nick and today's guest. Welcome to Running in Production. Today, I'm with Ian Iberg, who is mostly using Go to create a tool and service that lets you easily build and run unikernels. Ian, welcome to the show. Thanks, Nick. Thanks for uh, having us today. Excited to uh, to chat. Yeah, happy to have you on. So do you want to kick things off by introducing yourself and letting people know a little bit more about what a unikernel is and how it relates to your service? Sure. Yeah. So as I said, my name's Ian. Um, one of the founders over at nanovms.com. And, um, you know, I've been interested in unikernels for, I don't know, five or six years now. Um, I, I got interested all the way back then uh, when I was giving a talk over in Moscow um, at the High Load Conference. And uh, nobody had created a Go Unikernel at that time. And so we had one done with the Rump Run implementation, which was popular during that time. Um, booted that up on KVM. I was like, wow, this is, this is like what software infrastructure is going to look like in the future. And then we went down this long, hard, <laughs> winding road of providing all the other software that needed to kind of make this ecosystem happen. Um, short story is five years later, we've created our own unikernel. It's post six compliant, which, which basically means that it can run whatever Linux program you want to give it, not just go, um, you, you know, literally you can run anything and, um, it's all free and open source on GitHub. And, um, we're just, we're just continuing to build up the ecosystem. Uh, but you, you asked kind of like, what is a unikernel? So for those in the audience that are not quite sure what it is, you know, some people, or thinking, oh, is this a container, or you know, is this something else? Um, definitely belongs in the something else category. Essentially, what it is is uh, we ask a very pointed question, and we say, hey, you know, we're all basically on the cloud today, whether it's public cloud like AWS or Google Cloud or Microsoft Azure, or maybe you have OpenStack in a data center or vSphere. You know, it's it's all virtualized at the end of the day. Um, so why are we still using an operating system that was created 30 years ago, meant for real hardware, and um, comes with the same design characteristics that Unix was designed in with uh, over 50 years ago now? Um, and, and the answer is nobody's done the work to kind of fix it. <laughs> so, uh, but, but a unikernel just allows you to deploy a single application as a small, lightweight virtual machine. This virtual machine has no concept of users. It can literally only run one program. And generally, when we deploy them, they run a lot faster than their native Linux um, counterparts, and they run a lot safer. And the, and the safety aspect is one of the reasons why I got interested in the technology to begin with. Um, so we can kind of take that however direction you want to go. But, okay. I guess like before we really get into the details about... Uh the site powering this, or at least the service behind like the SaaS aspect, it sounds very, very similar to kind of what a container would do. Do you want to give like a TLDR on like the differences between the two? Sure. Yeah. So, so a container, um, you know, if, if we kind of step back and look at what a container actually is, um, you, you know, containers use parts of the Linux kernel, namely things like C groups, namespaces. Um, so the, there really is no actual container out there. It's, it's, uh, you, you know, there's, there's certain, abstractions that people have created where they kind of consider a container. But at the end of the day, it's just using parts of the Linux kernel to kind of create this um, isolated uh, way of running programs. 
Um, however, if you look at uh, some of the marketing that's been done in the past five, six, seven, eight years with containers, they've heavily looked at um, terms like isolation and security and things like that. And what's what's kind of turned out is that's the uh, complete opposite of that case. So if you're running containers on a Mac, well, you, you know, you're not running a container natively on a Mac, you're running it in a Linux VM. Um, and so, so containers always, always need Linux. Um, unikernels are quite different. Unikernels basically run as a virtual machine with no Linux inside. Uh, when you boot up a unikernel on Amazon, we don't go to Amazon and boot up a Linux EC2 small and then install like a Kubernetes thing on top. Um, what we do is we take your application, whether it's like Node or maybe it's a Go web server or whatever, and we create an AMI out of that and deploy that as its own instance. And there, there quite literally is no Linux running inside. And what's really interesting about this is um, compared to containers, um, all that networking, all the storage, all the security, all that sort of stuff, we offload all that onto the actual cloud itself. So, you know, if you rewind three or four years ago before Kubernetes and so forth got more popular, um, networking was kind of a real pain in the ass because people had to, you know, duplicate that networking layer. They had to duplicate the storage layers. I mean, to this day, there's lots of people that will not run databases and containers um, simply because of the storage uh, uh, problems. Uh, but with unikernels, we're using the underlying cloud layers. So we don't have to configure any of that. We, we just use what's there. And that also is one of the reasons why they run not just faster than containers, but faster than like a normal Debian or Ubuntu instance. Okay, I think you see now. Yeah, because with a container, you're kind of leveraging the Linux kernel and all the networking and the disk on the actual machine that you're running under. Whereas this one, you just all of that is offloaded to the cloud. Like you're using EBS and AWS or something like that for file storage. Yeah, so so like I mean, if you look at like Kubernetes, um, you, you know, if you want to connect two containers, like say you have Nginx talking to uh, you know MySQL or whatever, um, you have your your two programs there, and then they create either an underlay or an overlay network on top of the existing network. Now keep in mind, most people using containers and so forth, they're they're deploying to the public cloud already. They're deploying to Amazon. They're deploying to Google. Um, the main primitives that you get to work with there are virtual machines. So they're creating another layer on top. And, and we're saying, hey, um, we already have all these layers exposed to us. Um, I'm pretty sure Amazon, with its 30,000 plus engineers and, you know, 50 data centers or whatever it is, <laughs> can do a much, much better job of managing than that infrastructure complexity than, than our small team of two or five or 20 or even 100 engineers could. Yeah, so, so basically, you know, besides just the performance and the security aspects of Unicornals, kernels, complexity goes completely away with them. Right. Yeah, that's very good points, because I'm pretty sure, like you say, you know, their engineers are a little bit better than uh, my shell scripting abilities. Yeah, yeah. So I, I was just going to say that's, uh, that's, that's one of the things that we didn't even realize when we started using these um, was, because uh, again, we we're, we're more interested in the security aspects and so forth, but but that was that was something that a lot of people started noticing kind of earlier on was just like wow I don't have to there's no configuration you know there's no monitoring of of things crashing you know there's just all this stuff goes away because uh, it's literally just that one application and if the application crashes well guess what it's probably your fault <laughs> so it's 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 not this ops uh, heavy DevOps um, 
work that needs to be done. Yeah, that sounds super cool. I feel like we can spend the whole hour just talking about this, but I'd like to focus a little more on, you know, the tech stack running uh, the website that you offer as a SaaS app on top of, I guess it's a command line tool, then you would run somewhere to like launch this unikernel, but then the website offering is more of just like a SaaS servering uh, on top of that. Yeah, so to be clear, um, so what you're probably referring to is the Nano C2 platform. Um, and it's it's SaaS only in the sense that it's a monthly subscription, but you can actually um, download that application as a unikernel, and then you can deploy it to you know any of your any of your infrastructure of choice. So you can deploy it to vSphere, you can deploy it to Amazon. We don't look at you know we don't touch any of your data or anything. I mean we don't even know where you're running it really. Um, so that's you know that's that's very kind of uh, user driven really. Uh, but you don't even need you don't even need Nano C2. I mean, you can just use Ops, which is free and open source. It's on GitHub, or you can go to Ops.city, and that does everything necessary. Um, it's it's maybe the only difference is that you don't have a nice little GUI with it, and and it's daemonless. But um, other than that, it has all the functionality uh, that that you would find there. So you can build a uh, unikernel in one one command. You know, quite literally, it's a it's a one command build step, and basically it builds a disk image, and then um, you can spin up an instance. And so, whenever you spin up an instance, um, you know, we'll we'll take that disk image that you built, we'll shove it up into like a S three bucket or something like that, and then um, uh, when you spin up the instance, it just you know spins it up from that AMI that we created on Google. This this entire process is fairly fast. I can deploy a new. Uh, you know, like ops.city is running on Google as you go unikernel, so is nanos.org. Those deploys take all of two minutes to do. So it's it's pr- pretty fast there. Other cloud providers are not so fast, um, but I would imagine that tends to get fixed in the future. So, Yeah, that's really promising because like the idea of having a golden image that you bake into like an AMI or whatever, uh, usually the process is way longer than two minutes. Well, so... So that's interesting that you bring that up. And when we look at why that is, let's look at some of the tooling that um, you would use uh, for like Linux. We have Terraform, we have Puppet, we have Chef. Um, but you know, you dive into what exactly you're doing. Well, you know, Terraform, uh, you might SSH into an instance after you wait like a minute for it to boot up. Then you start installing a whole bunch of stuff. You configure a bunch of stuff. Um, generally speaking, if you're running Linux, even without you installing a single thing, like say say you boot up a Linux uh, Ubuntu server on EC2, without even you touching it, there's already a hundred programs running on it. Um, and this is just this is just the heavyweightness of your typical distro out there. Now, some people are like, "Well, I use Alpine, and you know, I use a very small Linux distro." It's like still, I mean, you still have probably a handful of programs, a hundred libraries, you know thousands of files um just you know it's even the smallest linux distros out there just have a ton and ton of stuff and um you know shared libraries i mean every single one of those is basically executable you you look at a unikernel like an nginx unikernel um and we have commands to where you can look at the file system and the file system will contain something like 10 files on it you know like like that's it that's that's everything and so that's you know the binary itself Maybe a couple config files, maybe some folders to stuff some logs in. That's about it. Um, we don't have all this other stuff. And, and we really drive home that question of, do you actually need 
all this other stuff? Um, generally, the answer would be no. You know, add what you need, but don't don't just take the kitchen sink and then try to prune it. Right. Yeah, it's almost like the exact opposite approach of current day stuff, like outside the unikernel world. Yep. So do you want to go into maybe uh, the motivations for using Go to build the website itself? Um, I guess that would be both OpCity or ops.city and nanos.org? Yeah. So um, using Go is, uh, I guess there's a couple of reasons. One, um, one, if you look at, especially ops.city, ops.city is a whopping two or three pages big. <laughs> so it's, uh, there's, not, there's not a lot going on there today. Um, and so you could, you could theoretically just use a static you know, uh, web server use like Nginx or something like that. And that, that's perfectly okay. I mean, we, we have an Nginx package and all that. Uh, something like nanos.org, we kind of see that to have a lot more uh, dynamic uh, features in the future. And so, um, so, you know, they're both Go web servers. Part of it's eating our own dog food too. Um, you know, we don't want to, uh, it, it, they, they quite literally are live, you know, testing targets that we monitor. Um, everything from, you know, uptime to memory to beep utilization, all that good stuff. And so um, we, we use them as dog food as well. Um, but, uh, but yeah, you know, Go is very simple and easy to work with. Go also has great cross-compilation support. So, you know, many of your listeners might be working on Windows or Mac, but they deploy to Linux systems. Um, Go is pretty excellent in that regard because you can go build with Goose equals Linux and, um, you know, you have a nice little elf. Uh, I can't say the same thing about many other languages. (laughs) So, uh, so there's that reason. Um, but, uh, but yeah, there's, I would say the, the other thing is that, you know, I've been using Go for, I don't know, since 2010. So, um, it's just kind of second nature for me as well. Oh, wow. 2010. That's, uh, probably close to ground zero when I, like one owed. I'm not really too sure on that, but yeah, I'm, I'm not exactly sure what version I, I, I know it was after 2010, but, uh, yeah, I, I, I wouldn't be able to tell you what version it was. Cool. So for the nanos.org site, then are you using any web frameworks on like on top of go or are you just using the standard library? Um, no, it's just, it's just the, uh, well, so there's standard live library and then I guess uh, gorilla mux is used for the routing that's about it. You, you know, I don't, uh, I'm, I'm the type of guy that if I want some functionality, either I code it myself or I just don't want to code it for whatever reason, um, I'll cut and paste from another library rather than trying to vendor it. You know, one, one and this kind of ties into unikernel philosophy too, is the fact if you look at like some projects out there, and I'll pick on like Node and Rust, <laughs> maybe, maybe goes going that way too, but... Um, you look at some of these projects and they will yank in like a hundred some odd dependencies. And so managing that dependency chain, you know, some people argue it is much easier because you can just, you know, have it listed out. But I, I would argue the opposite is the case because, you know, you're, you're now having to deal with all those dependencies. Um, and so anybody who's left a project and came to it after three or four months can, can understand that pain too. Um, so so yeah, I I, uh, I I tend to opt for fewer dependencies. However, having said that, I don't really code that much these days anyways. So I kind of revert to whatever my uh, development team wants to do. 
And so you can see in ops, you know, that dependency graph has grown a little bit, especially in like the past year. Right. Yeah, no, that's a great point about the Node ecosystem. Like I'm not super involved with Node, but I know I'm working on the front end for some stuff and that Node modules directory, you know, that meme picture of like being heavier than the galaxy or whatever, totally true in some cases. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm always, you know, when I was out like giving talks on union kernels a while back ago, we would always show these like little pictures, you know, there'd be like Super Mario Brothers one and it's like a picture of him throwing his fireballs and so forth. And, uh, you know, I'm like, this entire graphic is larger than, than the actual video game was <laughs> and, or like, or, you know, you can stuff the entirety of, you know, the first doom game into your modern web page <laughs> stuff like that. So, um, but yeah. Right. Now, speaking of web pages here, uh, do you want to go over maybe like the type of traffic you're dealing with for nanos.org? Oh yeah. So, so nanos and ops, I mean, they get traffic, but they don't get like a ton of traffic. Um, and I don't, I don't see them getting a ton of traffic uh, anytime soon. However, we, we are kind of throwing out more and more services. You know, we have the concept of like a package repository with, uh, with nanos. And right now that's just kind of hot links to a bucket. I would imagine eventually we're going to have to do something different with that, you know, with caching and, and so forth. Um, but uh, we haven't really hit that problem yet. That'll, that'll be something interesting. Uh, th there are some users that we're familiar with that do have um, decent sized deployments with, with nanos. Um, one organization has like a thousand some odd um, people in it and they're, they're doing some heavy stuff. Uh, another organization um, has quite a few different data centers and they're starting to roll out nanos in there. So um, I'm, I'm very, very interested and excited to kind of speak about how some of those people are utilizing nanos in the future. Cause you know, coming back to it, uh, the Go web server on like Google, for instance, nanos.org and OpsCity, um, those routinely uh, can push like 2x requests per second faster than their equivalents on, on like Debian. Um, same size instance, same zone, all that good stuff. Um, and, they're, and they're just pushing like two times as fast. On AWS, um, we see the same thing, but it's more like 3x. And, and we see that with REST web servers as well. Uh, web, web servers is something that we've concentrated on because that's kind of, you know, web app servers are, are probably bread and butter for our audience. But now we're starting to look at um, databases and so forth too. And, and so things like MySQL, we're running a little bit faster. And, uh, you know, we're, we're just uh, keeping going on that and, and probably get some more, um, some more in-depth benchmarking uh, done in the near future. Nice. Yeah, I'm trying really hard to put constraints on myself to not keep asking you questions about the unikernel aspect itself because it's it's super interesting. Like, how can you run a web app that also has a database and Redis and a like a background work and all this other cool stuff? And man, yeah. Hopefully, all that stuff is uh, answered on your website in maybe like a fact or a video or documentation or something. Yeah. No. I mean, I could I could just briefly um, tell you right now. <laughs> so it's a. Uh... So, so yeah, your, your typical um, web stack, I mean, it, any company that any of your listeners work for is uh, handling more than a handful of services. And, and I'll just define a service as, you know, maybe it's a database, maybe it's Redis, maybe it's web server, maybe it's whatever. And um, not, not necessarily a microservice, just, just a program running, doing something. Um, on Linux, 
depending on how much traffic you get, you could potentially stick all that crap onto one box. Now, uh, with unikernels, what we do is each program spins up as its own virtual machine. And so when we spin up MySQL and Redis and Nginx and um, you know a, a Go web server, those are all different virtual machines. And so uh, going back to that networking duplication and so forth, um, we don't really deal with any of the networking configuration. We don't really deal with any of the volume mounting or anything, although that's available. It, you know, they just use those native facilities that exist. And so each individual application is its own VM. The security implications of this is what I found super interesting when I dived into this, is that we quite literally cannot run more than one application on that instance. So if you look at any sort of security vulnerability in the world, and you look at what attackers trying to do, you know, at the end of the day, attackers don't really care about your software. Um, they're just, you know, finding the open doors and the broken windows into your server. Um, once they're on the server, they're going to run their programs. And that could be a crypto jacker, you know, mining illicit cryptocurrency, or it could be, uh, you know, something as simple as running MySQL dump and grabbing the database, or, you know, even as something as simple as running LS or PSOX or something like that. Um, you know, we call those commands, but what are they? They're, they're different programs. And even something as simple as that, um, you can't do on a unikernel unless you've coded in that functionality into your application. And so, you know, just from a security perspective alone, um, that's, that's incredibly uh, valuable uh, for these systems. So yeah, uh, that's kind of a long-winded uh, way of uh, answering that question on, on how you run those multiple applications. Right, no, it was a good answer. And also kind of cool to know that like, yeah, you can't even run LS because the LS program is not there sitting in the unikernel, just your, you know, Nginx process or whatever. Yeah. No, nothing's stopping you from, um, you know, coding something into your applications where, you know, if it's a web server, you respond with the contents of the file system. Um, you can code that in if, if you needed to or wanted to. But, um, but yeah, that like the concept of a shell, that doesn't, it doesn't even make sense in unikernels because a shell is, um, you know, this interactive program. Every, every single thing you type into a shell is a new program. And it's, it's uh, for some people, that's weird to think about, you know, because they're like, oh, they're commands. And it's like, yeah, but they're also extra programs. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, that's, uh, it's, it's a different way of thinking about things. And honestly, a lot of people don't get it until they deploy their first union kernel. And then they're like, ah, I, I understand now. So it's, it's kind of like treating the entire cloud as, as one computer, really, is, is, is what it's like. Right. Yeah, very, very cool indeed. Now, for this site itself, the nanos.org one, is this broken up into like a couple of different unikernels, I guess? No, well, maybe not because they wouldn't necessarily be different processes, but is it like a monolithic app or is there like different components of it? Yeah, net, you know, both ops.city and nanos.org are um, extremely simple. Um, they are not really doing much. And so it's, yeah, it's just a single Go web server, um, you know, and uh, there's no front end because there's really... There's, there's, there's not a lot of dynamic components there yet. So, um, but, uh, but yeah, if, if you look at like Nano C2, which is on, on, um, on our homepage, nanovms.com, that does have a front end framework, mainly because there's quite a few different operations that, uh, that don't, don't uh, finish immediately. So like if I want to 
delete an instance on Amazon, you know, that's not like an instantaneous operation. It doesn't happen in like 10 milliseconds or something. It, it can take one or two seconds or three seconds. And, you know, that's obviously too long to wait. So uh, things like that, that's that's why that has a front end. But um, other than that, you know, even that's still pretty simple. That today is using an embedded key value store um, for very simple configuration. Um, we might, you know, open up the possibility to offload it to a, another database, but right now we don't we don't have a great um, uh, reason to do so. Okay. Now you mentioned that these sites don't really have a front end except for that one. Uh, the only two sites that I saw before this call, real quick, were like thenanos.org and ops.city one, and both of them did have, you know, it was a web page being served, right? HTML, CSS, JavaScript, all of that stuff. Are you saying those files then, all those static files, are hosted somewhere else outside of that uh, unikernel for that process or app? Um, no, they're just they're just served up statically. So you know, Go has like a little static um, file server. So yeah, like like anything, you don't have a route for. You can just have a default to where you know it says, "Hey, everything in public just serve it statically." And and so underlying that. Um, you can do things like use send file and so forth versus, you know, reading in the HTML, parsing it and, um, you know, plugging in the, uh, the template of values and all that sort of stuff. And then writing it out, you know, however many bytes it writes out at a time. Um, so it's generally speaking, serving those static files is a lot faster um, using that kind of embedded uh, file server. Okay. I noticed too on the nanos.org site, you had like pricing tables. Like if you wanted to sign up for, you know, this tier or that tier or the other tier, uh, is that all functionality baked into that site? Like do you stripe on the back end to handle payments and then you have like users and things like that? Oh yeah. So, so on nanovms.com, um, our, our company's website, there's, there's a few pricing plans there. Uh, but yeah, so, so nano C2 is a, is a downloadable product. Um, you know, I think there's like a $7 a month and, or you could just buy like a yearly sub, sub for it. And then, um, and then we also have like tech support type of plans, um, available. And so, you know, some are like a dollar a day type of thing, more of, more of like a tip rather than anything else. Uh, uh but then there's, you know, there's more heftier ones like the $600 ones. Um, those, those do all route through Stripe today. Um, and that's, you know, that's mainly just to have kind of a self-serve option uh, for, you know, loan developers or small teams that don't really want to talk to, um, you know, salespeople. <laughs> so uh, that's, that's mainly what that's there for. Okay. So like for the bigger plan, the enterprise one, whatever it was, like the $600 a month one, that one, uh, are you just accepting payments then outside of Stripe, like directly through like a bank ACH or whatever. Yeah. So, so if people want to go through Stripe, you know, they can go through Stripe or, um, you know, as if you poke around on the page more, um, you'll find that, you know, we, we offer more stuff for larger organizations because, because we do work with some pretty large organizations, uh, you know, fortune 50 companies that are deploying unikernels today. So like every now and then the question comes up on hacker news, like who's using unikernels in production and, it's like actually, there's there's quite a few large companies that are using them today, and it, you know the the other thing I should mention is a lot of people don't know that there's something like I don't know ten or twelve different unikernels out there today. Um, they're all focused on you know different things from some are language specific, some are performance uh, niched, some are security niched. Uh, you know, there it's all over the map, 
And there's, there's like this massive undercurrent. Um, almost every single Usenix and OSDI type of conference, like half the papers are unikernels. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's actually a really big deal kind of under the waters today. I don't know how that flew under my radar. Like pretty okay in, at the app stuff, right? I use a lot of containers and virtual machines. Before today, unikernel was not even in my vocabulary. Yeah. Well, that's, I mean, that's, you know, that's one of the, uh, the problems that we found was, it, so we're based in San Francisco, right? And so, you know, before all the COVID bullshit happened, I mean, you know, you could walk around the street and just randomly walk into, you know, random developers. But suppose you bumped into one of those random developers and you asked them what a unicorn was, they, you know, vast majority of them would have been like, you need what? What are you talking about? <laughs> so um, it's, it's definitely not in the vernacular um, yet, but, uh, but I, think, I think it will be simply because of, of the security and the performance and, and the complexity uh, benefits. Right. So go, going back to the site here, you, know, you mentioned you kind of don't have like a, a large front end, but for those static files like the CSS and JavaScript, do you have a like Webpack bundling all of those assets or something else or nothing? Uh, you know, on, I think Nano C2 um, uses that in its pipeline. Um, but for nanovms.com uh, and Nanos um, and OpCity, no, they're just static because they don't really get changed that much. Um, I mean, if they did, then th that'd be different. But as you, as you might be able to infer, um, we don't really have a full-time designer or anything. Um, so whenever we get something to design, we, we basically stick with it for, for a while. <laughs> um, and then, you know, if it changes, we, we push out new changes, but we, we, we just simply don't have enough, um, changes to kind of use something like that in the build pipeline. Okay. Yeah. No, I took a look at those sites. They look pretty sharp, I guess, like pre-bought themes from somewhere. Um, no, not, not buying pre-bought themes. Uh, we, there's a few designers, uh, that we lean on, um, from time to time. And, um, so it's, uh, yeah, I just, we reach out to them and be like, Hey, we, we have a new project. We want to come in and do X, Y, Z and, and go from there. So nice. So maybe now we can talk a little bit more about like the rest of your tech stack. So it sounds like it's pretty minimal, right? You mentioned just having that key value store for now, and then you just have you know, the unikernel for just running the Go application. Is there anything else that we're missing? Like, do you have another uh, Nginx unikernel in front of that or something else? No, so what's, so you had asked one of the reasons why we use Go. Um, that's actually another reason why, you know, for, for the longest time, it was very customary to have like Nginx or a proxy or something front end, whatever your web application server was. Um, that's still the case for, you know, more higher traffic sites simply because of load balancing reasons, right? Um, or, or maybe you have like an ELB or something like that. But, but Go is actually uh, not as fast, but fast enough than having to stick it behind Nginx to load balance. Um, now, that's not the case for other interpreted languages where, uh, it, you know, the, the interpreter is um, typically going to be a lot slower than a, than a compiled language. Um, so, uh, but yeah, go, go is fine. And so, yeah, when you hit up ops.city or you hit up, uh, nanos.org, you're, you're actually talking to, um, go itself. You're not talking to Nginx or anything and it, and it handles it just fine. I think, you know, we're doing like 36,000 requests or something on the instance that we had. And it's, these are small instances, by the way, they're not, 
you know, they're, they're, they're pretty cheap. <laughs> they, they're, they're not the shared thread instances. They do have like one full thread, but other than that, it's, um, it's not like we're using heavy instances or anything. I mean, and that's, that's also kind of, you know, another kind of unikernel philosophy thing is that, uh, if you look at the clouds, um, the smallest instances that you can get are the shared threads. So, so you have like one hyper thread and you're, you're basically, you know, time shared, uh, with other people on, on that system, um, with, with that one thread. And so we're talking like the, I think the G1 smalls, I, I think are shared. Um, maybe, maybe I'm wrong on that. Uh, but, uh, but then the next instance up, you get a full fixed thread. So that thread is actually pinned to your program. So that's great. Um, because the variance between sharing a thread and, and, um, having your own, um, one is, is insane. <laughs> and then, uh, and then obviously, you know, you can go all the way up to like what 384 on Google. I'm not sure what Amazon's is, but I don't, you know, that's, that's a lot, that's a lot of, um, concurrency that you can, uh, deal with. And so, so our attitude is like, you deploy your program to, to an instance, and then you use as much, um, performance as you, as you need. Um, you can scale out, you know, and add more instances, or you can scale horizontally, um, if, if your program can do that as well. Now people will bring up, well, I write Ruby or I, I write Python, I write Node all these interpreted languages, um, they're inherently single thread, single process to begin with. And so uh, people were like, well, how do I scale these out? And the answer is simple. It's uh, you do it the exact same way you're doing it now, because if you're using Ruby or Node or something like that, and, and you need to scale out, you know, people already stick it behind something like an Nginx or some other load balancing mechanism um, to, to do so. And so you spin up, three instances or five instances and, and you stick it behind that load balancer and, and you're good to go. Okay. What about for like vertically scaling though? Like in the Ruby world, you might run, are you familiar with like the Puma web server in, in Ruby? Yeah. Yeah. So let's, let's just say like you want to, let's say you have a, a box that has two CPU cores. So you might run, you know, maybe start off with like four workers, right? With Puma. And then it's going to spin up basically four processes in the background and kind of load balance them internally by Puma. You don't need to think about it, but like, that's how you get the concurrency, right? You just run like another instance of your app. So how would that work with, in the unikernel case, do you just run, like, let's say you have a box with two CPU cores. Do you then just spin up four unikernels and like, like the magic of the unikernel tool, like load balances that, or do you have to like put that behind Nginx and then like deal with that load balancing yourself? Yeah. Yeah. So it's, so it's actually the latter. And so like, like again, Every single interpreted language out there, um, all those dynamically type interpreted languages like your, your Rubies and your nodes and stuff, you, you know, when Puma spins, spins them up, they're actually spinning up a, a completely brand new uh, Ruby interpreter um, as, as another process because Ruby doesn't actually have like real native threads. Technically, that's not, it's not technically true because if you look at MRI, there's, there are like two threads running. Um, but it's not, it's not a concept that gets thrown out to the end user as, as like a concurrency mechanism. Um, and so, uh, so yeah, they, they have four processes and all that. However, on Linux, uh, when we do that, um, we have this concept of context switching. And so, uh, you can only really run, um, as many threads as, as you have available. And so, uh, you, you know, we're, used to in this day and age dealing with uh with hyper threads 
And so, you know, you can each each process, if, if you have like, you know, you, you mentioned four processes for Puma and you have, you know, your four threads, that's great. But you probably have like, you know, another 60 some odd processes that are all being switched out at the same time. And every single time you do that, you know, you flush the TLB and you do all this other stuff. And it's actually um, uh, a pretty heavy cost. And so when when you look at unikernels out there and they talk about, hey, we're running this a lot faster, there's a couple of reasons why. Many unikernels out there take the no syscall approach. And basically what that does is uh, erode away the boundary of the kernel to user land, which also incurs its own context switching costs. There's like four different types of context switching. Um, kernel to kernel, user to user, kernel to user, and uh, that sort of thing. And so um, Nanos doesn't actually do that. We do keep the boundary in place for security reasons. However, what we don't have is that process to process context switch. And so that's what allows us to still have that performance, but keep the security guarantees. Now to kind of roll back on your question, how do you actually do that? Um, what we would do is we'd say, okay, well, your Ruby web server, how much, how much performance do you actually need? Um, do you need one thread or do you need four threads? Um, and you know, if it's four, then we spin up four instances uh, behind that load balancer and you're off to the races. But we don't, we don't eschew the model of having multiple, multiple processes on the same server unless it's like your own hardware. And in that case, you could do something um, because, uh, because then you can run virtualized workloads. Okay. So, so kind of diving into that a little bit, um, ops, the, you know, the orchestration tool that's really built for people using public clouds, Amazon, Google, that sort of thing. And so it really kind of, it takes all the infrastructure complexity and shoves it onto the public cloud and says, Hey, don't, don't mess, mess around with this. Now, if you're some other company, say you work at like an Uber or, you know, Airbnb, some, some other massively uh, large organization, maybe you have your own data centers and maybe you're running your own virtualization, like you're using an OpenStack or something like that. In, in a case like that, um, you have more control over the orchestration layer and, and you could theoretically kind of, um, you know, uh, have a different framework that, that spins those um, processes up more. So using something like Firecracker, for instance, that's another... Uh, machine monitor replacement for QMU. So in that case, you could you could do something different there. But yeah, in general, like if you're on Amazon and and you're just like a small shop, it'd be just the four instances to get behind a load balancer and, and off to the races. And and so it's again, it's really use whatever is necessary. Don't use more. Don't use less. Just use whatever is necessary for your application. Instrument it. You know, observe it. Look at it. See how much traffic you get and, and go from there. Right. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Like you wouldn't necessarily be on the hook for having to write the load balancing logic and update Nginx configs. You would just, yeah, use the cloud's uh, ELB, let Amazon deal with that. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean, that's, yeah, that's, and we're, we're very much a proponent of that too. You know, I think, I think one of the, you know, and just to kind of rewind, it's like what, 2021, so Heroku came out in like 2008 or something. When Heroku actually came out, I was very bewildered why people were using it. <laughs> you know? So I was, I was like, man, who, who would use it? Because you don't have any control on the infrastructure, you know, like, and it's, but there's a lot of people that, you know, used it back then. I mean, even to, to this day. And it wasn't until later on that I realized that, you know, there's, there's quite a few developers out there that 
really don't want to manage servers whatsoever. Um, and that's, that's where the platforms and then later on the kind of containers came in and started um, providing that abstraction layer. And unikernels are interestingly um, kind of in that same category because there is no infrastructure to, uh, to manage. There's no shells that you're SSHing into and, you know, configuring Nginx and making sure that when Puma kills off a worker that it restarts it on another one and all this other stuff. Um, so it's uh, all that management is kind of abstracted away and shoved onto, onto the provider that you're using. Right. Yeah. So instead of like individual processes and things you would need to run on a single machine, like you're still dealing with, dealing with infrastructure, but it's more just like higher level Lego pieces, right? It's like the elastic load balancer, RDS, Elasticash, not how do I set up unattended upgrades on Ubuntu or something? Yeah. But I mean, just, yeah, but you know, just to drill on what you just said, um, we're not saying go out and use cloud specific stuff like Elasticash or uh, RDS or something like that. Um, if you want to, that's fine. But we're, we're saying like the fundamental cloud building blocks that every cloud has, the concept of a virtual machine, the concept of here's your network and, you know, things of that nature. That's what we're saying. Um, we kind of interface directly with because that that's um, even across anywhere. A uh, class C private LAN, I mean, take it, deploy it wherever. Uh, the, uh, the VM disk, take it, deploy it wherever. Um, well, it is true that like on Azure, you might use a VHDX disk image and Amazon, it might be a, you know, QCOW 2 or whatever. Um, at the end of the day, like it's, they're still virtual machines. And so it's, it's something that if, if you, if you deploy to Amazon and your boss comes in and says, Hey, we have this nice contract with Google. We need to migrate everything to Google today. Um, that can be a real pain in the ass if you're running like Linux or, um, you know, your containers or whatever. But with unikernels, I mean, literally you just, you, you change the provider and you're up instantly. There's none of that, um, configuration that you're having to do. Yeah. To, to just kind of drill in on that, you know, going back to like, say using Terraform or Chef or Puppet, you know, people were like, oh man, I got to rewrite all this crap that we did. And it's, it's like, actually you don't really have to do that much anymore because you never did it to begin with, um, with, with unikernels. Okay. So then with your command line tool, then you have some form of like a config file where you can just set a different provider and not have to really worry that much about, uh, changing like, you know, 47 resources of, of things. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, it's that simple. And, you know, I mean, there's, there's options, you know, if, if you want to say, Hey, I want it in this network security group, or I want it in this VPC, or I want, you know, this region. And I want, you know, you can set all of that, um, obviously, but in terms of managing, you know, say your Puma workers and all that complex routing and, you know, making sure your users are, you know, in, in, in the right groups and all this sort of stuff, uh, permissions and all that. I mean, all that stuff just goes out the door, you know, just to drill in on that again, comparing to Linux, um, you know, Linux is a multiple process, multiple user system. It was inherently built to run on real hardware. Linus was probably working on like a 286, maybe a 386 back in 92 when he released it. Um, and so, that's a far cry from the systems that we deploy to today. Um, and unikernels do not have the concept of users at all. They don't have the concepts of running multiple processes on the same system. What does that mean? We don't deal with file permissions. 
Like if you go look at the syscalls, they're completely stubbed out. And at, at first glance, people were like, oh, well, isn't this a problem? And it's like, well, you know, challenge it. Tell us what exactly is the problem because you can't start another process. Therefore, you can't really interfere with another user's permissions because the entire concept doesn't even exist. Um, it's, it's only, it only becomes a problem when you have the capability of running different workloads on that same system. But if the system's only built to run one workload, then, then there really is no problem. So I have a question for you. Before you mentioned that you are using Go directly to serve uh, your static files and, and stuff like that, there's no Nginx in front. Are, are you then dealing with SSL certs at the level of Go? Like, do you just have Go to configured? Yeah, and, and you know, you don't have to do that if you don't want to, but in the case of nanos.org, yeah, it's doing TLS termination there. Uh, same thing with ops.city. A, a lot of people thought that, you know, you know, in the past people have thought, oh, well, it's going to be too slow. There's this, there's this concept that's been around since like forever <laughs> that uh, TLS termination is too slow. I remember working at this company like, I don't know, eight years ago and, and they were arguing about this and it's just, it's just this concept that keeps on getting thrown out and out and out. And, uh, you know, back in 2001, yes, TLS termination was slow but not 2021. Go is perfectly fast enough to, to do that. Um, you, can, you can serve it straight up. I mean, our load, like if you look at the CPU graphs, they're nothing. Uh, and it's, you know, you can ship a ton of traffic at it. It's still nothing. Um, so it's, uh, now I, I can't say that for every language, right? Um, there's, there's definitely other languages that are much slower and you, you definitely would want to use Nginx or ELB or something else, but, but with Go, it's not a problem. Right. So I, I guess my question around that one is like, if there's only the Go web process running in that unikernel, but there's some state involved with, a, you know, with an SSL cert because you have, you know, the key and the certificate file sitting somewhere, usually those would be generated by, you know, like a cert bat process or acme.sh or whatever tool that you use to generate your certificate, right? Assuming you're using even Let's Encrypt to begin with. Uh, how do you coordinate the output of let's just say cert bots certificates into the unikernel for Go? Well, our, our certs are um, generated uh, like that. I, and, and, and to be honest, I'm not, I'm not exactly a huge fan of, of, the, uh, of those, the, the way the kind of auto-generated certs work. One, for centralization reasons. Um, we've seen those providers go down too much um, to, to rely on. But, um, but yeah, you can definitely roll in. And if, if you do want to go that route, you can use kind of in-app agents to, to where they, you know, periodically re-roll their certs um, and, and you don't have to like shell out or anything. That's, you know, just to kind of drill in on um, philosophy and so forth. We've, we've always kind of considered the concept of shelling out to be bad programming um, practice and unikernels really kind of enforce it. To, to the extent to where they say that you straight up can't do that. So, um, so yeah, if, if you would want to go that route, then you would need to use one of the in-app agents that, that does that rather than um, have a cron job that sits there and, you know, re regenerates. Right. But I think earlier in the call, you kind of mentioned there maybe is a way to like sort of use volumes to kind of pull in a file from maybe a different unikernel. Is that another, I guess, way to maybe solve that one or no? Yes. So, yeah, uh, it's good. good thing you pointed that out. Um, that definitely is a method that you can utilize. So some organizations um, 
particularly larger ones, what they'll do is they will separate the concept of things like secrets and SSL certs and stuff like that uh, from the deploy process. So, uh, you know, your developers are, you know, plugging away on their CI, CD and, you know, just deploying 10,000 times a day. But then their security organization are the ones that are in charge of rolling new certs, rolling new secrets, all that sort of stuff. And in some organizations, what they do is they just stick them on different mount points. And so every like four hours, you have a new, um, you know, cert. And so even if a box got owned, you know, every four hours, it's guaranteed to kind of be reset type of thing. Um, so uh, that's, that's definitely something that we support. And so on, you know, Amazon, Google, all that stuff, uh, we have the capacity to sit there and define multiple mount points, say slash secrets or whatever the hell you want to call it. And you can just sit there and remount the volume as many times as you want. Um, and that's, that's definitely a, uh, a method there. So uh, that's, that's also, you know, when you start talking about databases, um, that's something that you would want to probably do if you have like a large uh, database because um, say, say you have a MySQL or whatever, and, you know, d databases, some are small, you know, 200 megs or whatever, but sometimes if you have a decent site, they can be gigabytes or terabytes or whatever. So uh, you, you definitely don't want to have to put all that on your root disk image um, simply because the deploys would be insane. But there's there's other reasons, because you know, like where you just don't want the data to be um, screwed with. Yeah, or just keeping a web server stateless or whatever. Yeah, yeah, and so you can redeploy that root image, and um, you know, keep your data persistent on a on a different volume, and and so like in the case of AWS, and you know, that's just another EBS volume that you're running um, there. Right now, speaking of AWS, maybe now we can switch gears a bit and just talk about what cloud hosting provider you use for you know all the sites that you run. Is it AWS or something else? So nanos.org and ops.city are deployed on Google Cloud. Nano VMs is deployed on our own hardware um, in a uh, data center uh, kind of down the road. And so those are the main ones that we use. However, um, ops can deploy to any cloud imaginable. I mean, there's support for uh, Azure, Google, AWS. Um, there's, uh, we have Hyper-V if, if you just have like a Windows box that you want to run stuff on. Um, we have, you know, uh, OpenStack. We have vSphere, you know, all, all, all the popular stuff is supported. Um, some are better suited for these things than others. Like, you know, one of the reasons we have nanos on Google is because of those fast deploy times. And um, generally, it's just a really good experience there. There's, there's other random niceties that, that we run into. Microsoft has so much configuration complexity, it's kind of insane. Um, <laughs> you know, we, we learned this by going through and adding support for these different providers. And it's, it's kind of crazy. Some of the complexity that some of them present, but, uh, but yeah, it, de deploy anywhere is, is what we do. Okay. What about some other providers that are like, you know, not full blown like AWS where you have like 150 different services, but like something like a digital ocean where, you know, they might have the ability to throw up a VPS, manage database, load balancer, you know, they have block storage, but not quite maybe everything to get a unikernel running, or did you just not get the DigitalOcean yet? Yeah, no, DigitalOcean is supported. Um, DigitalOcean and then Vulture, which I don't really know the relationship. Are they 
direct competitors or because they look precisely the same. <laughs> um, but uh, but yeah, both of those offer like what $5 a month instances, which are great for, you know, a, a blog or something. You deploy your blog as a union kernel and, you know, you just kind of set it and forget it. Right. Yeah. But both of those are supported. And then, you, you know, VPSs you can you can deploy to if you want. Um, if you're deploying to something like a Hetzner or um, OVH, somebody like that, um, you know, that's interesting. Be, or, uh, you know, uh, what is that? Uh, packet. Yeah, packet.net. I mean, all those guys give you um, bare metal. And so if you wanted to, you could build like your own unikernel uh, uh, cloud service, if you will. Um, because you can run virtualized payloads there, uh, which is not so easily to do on something like Amazon or Google. Google does have one instance that allows nested virtualization, but you're going to you're going to take a performance hit for that. And then recently, we added support for uh, T2 style instances on Amazon, and so that comes with ENA uh, network adapter support, and then the NVMe um, drivers. And so while it's technically not bare metal, what what they've done is kind of they've multiplexed at the hardware uh, layer to where you can get some like really good performance. And, and also you have access to the virtualization um, instructions, which is, which is what's necessary to, to run these in production. Right. That's to be able to run like a VM within a VM or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. So that's it. again, just to reiterate, like if you wanted to run these today and you go to Amazon, you don't boot up a Linux instance and run ops on top. It's, that's not how it happens. It's, you do ops instance create, and we actually create the AMI for you. If you wanted to manage all this stuff yourself, maybe you're doing some sort of hosting service, or maybe you want to do some sort of firecracker type of thing, um, you would want a dedicated server to, to run those on. You know, just, just to be clear, that comes with like a ton of extra, you know, ops work that, that you would need to do. Yeah, thinking about that just makes me think like, and you thought Kubernetes was hard to deploy, and then right. there's this. <laughs> It's like a whole nother level of maybe let someone else who actually knows what they're doing to deal with that stuff. Yeah, yeah. That's I mean, that's 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 our attitude. I mean, if if you're again, if you're a huge company with like ten thousand engineers, go for it. But like if you're five people startup, you know, you should just deploy to the cloud using what they provide. Right. Now earlier you mentioned, you know, you're kind of spread across GCP and you also have your own you know, bare metal running in a data center that's around the block or whatever. Uh, do you want to go over the thought process for choosing your own data center like that instead of just putting that on GCP also? Well, I mean, that's that's a couple of different non-technical decisions is, is really what that is. Uh, it, we were thinking about having our own kind of hosting service for a little bit uh, for, for a few reasons. Uh, one, we could spin them up a lot faster than all the other clouds. Um, two, it'd just be easier to provide support and so forth. Yeah, three, I mean, like I've racked some of those servers myself. So it's, it's, it's very accessible, very easy. It's extremely cheap. You know, I, I live in the Bay Area, which doesn't have the cheapest colo in, in, the, in the world, but there's enough density here that it's just, it, there is cheap options. And so, um, but yeah, there's, uh, there's, there's a variety of reasons. Um, we're not really doing much with that today. Uh, but we, we do keep it around um, mainly because it allows us to uh, have access to lots of support. So like whenever we do vSphere, for instance, we can do nested vSphere, but you really want like a hardware based one to, 
to integrate against. Same thing with OpenStack. You could do nested OpenStack, but installing OpenStack by itself is a pain in the ass. You don't you don't really want to screw with the nested stuff. Um, so there's there's a lot of things, and and there's all these little quirks too. So um, since unikernels are at the you know they they run as VMs, you run into all sorts of random quirks uh, sometimes when you're at that level. Uh, so sometimes you have VTX extensions, but maybe you don't have, you know, something like EPT or something like that. Um, and just to be clear, you know, all this stuff is like super old already. But um, when you're supporting a customer, maybe the customer just hasn't updated their, their servers forever. And so that's, that's where you start running into things like that. So, okay. So for the hardware that you own, that you have things running on, are you open to going into like how much you pay for that per month or I mean, maybe the specs of those servers and then what you paid for that? Because it is interesting. Like, yeah, just bare metal hardware. What was that one service you mentioned, like OVH.net or whatever? I've never used them before, but I remember looking at the pricing tables once and it was like, oh, yeah, 40 bucks a month. Oh, sure. Eight CPU cores, like 32 gigs of RAM and, you know, like some amazing stats versus what you would normally get on the cloud. Yeah. I mean, so I've used some hosted uh, dedicated services before. And frankly, um, I've never been impressed with any of them, especially not at Hesner. I mean, that's, I can't stand that um, company last time I used them. But um, but uh, but yeah, for our own servers, um, you know, I don't know if this company is still around, but there used to be, well, I, I think they are, uh, deepdiscountservers.com. You can go in there and get like, I don't even know what you would get now, like a 64 thread for like 800 bucks or something like that you know, get, get like 64 gigs of RAM or some ridiculous. And basically it's all old hardware that some company has swapped out and now they're just reselling. And, you know, I, uh, we have some servers in our colo that have been up for like two and a half years, like, like literally just never, <laughs> yeah. I, so not to date, date myself, but I'm like, um, 38 or something. And so back in like 90, late nineties and early two thousands, we used to have contests on, you know, uptime and stuff. Which, you know, that's largely gone away, but, but yeah, I mean, that just tells you kind of the quality of the hardware and the quality of the service provider and speaking of the service provider. So the de the uh, colo in question is Hurricane Electric. I think they have a deal for $400 for a cabinet each month, which, you know, for, for those of you who haven't like been in a data center, a cabinet can hold like quite a few servers. Um, not, you know, one server is like your 64 gigs RAM, but you could... You know, you can put in like 16, 20 of them, <laughs> put in your switch at, at the top, put in your remote ends other here. And I mean, it, you're not going to fill up a colo until you start doing some serious, serious uh, traffic. So now does that cabinet also include power and networking as well as now? Yeah. Yeah. Well, for for them, it's, you know, it's unlimited, quote, unlimited. Honestly, it's one of those things where they give you enough amps where it's just it's really hard to max it out. In, unless you're just, unless you're really doing some serious uh, traffic. Um, and then, you know, same thing with the bandwidth, you know, they got multiple carriers coming in. So you can, if you want to peer with somebody, you could, we don't do that. Um, we have no, no use for that, but it's, it's obviously an option. You know, it's, I wouldn't do it if you're just hosting a blog, but if you've, if you've got a small site with moderate traffic and you live near the data center, then I think it's a fine choice. Or the, the other option is if you're spending more than a couple thousand dollars on, on a public cloud and, and you just want more control, I mean, that's also a, another 
another option. Yeah. I feel like a lot of folks go down that route of like maybe using the cloud to start, but then migrating to their own data center once they get big enough. And then maybe like if they ever reach like ridiculous scale, they go back to the cloud, like, you know, orders of magnitude more than you can ever even like imagine, sort of. I think I think the problem, though, is like if you're on Amazon, you know, they have how many services, like 120, 130 services. So you, you start coding against those services and uh, you can get stuck pretty damn fast. I mean, just, it, you know, I, I worked with companies where they're just trying to move from one cloud to another and it's such a pain for them that sometimes they just give up. And so it's, I can't even imagine those companies trying to um, move on to their own hardware. So yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. I, yeah, no, there's, I think there's more room for uh, more development in the future, you know, especially as edge gets more and more um, put out there. I mean, we're stuffing really interesting software applications into computers everywhere. And so, you know, you walk into a parking lot and, you see like 15 security cameras and, you know, some of those are running, you know, ML inferencing applications on them. Uh, you know, it, it, there's, there's things like that. I mean, that's, that's going to be so commonplace everywhere. So it's, uh, so yeah, I'm very interested to see how kind of cloud disaggregation develops. And, you know, personally, I think union kernels have a huge spot to, to participate in that simply from a management management um, perspective, you know, it's, it's already a pain in the ass to like SSH into say a hundred instances, even in an automated fashion, maybe you're using salt or something to automate everything. And that's, that's already a complete pain. Um, what's going to happen when, when, uh, you're responsible for like 10,000 servers, you know, it's just, it's just not going to work anymore. Yeah. Like I've used Ansible for the last, I don't know, seven or eight years. And it works amazing when you have like one server or, you know, I've even had a couple where some infrastructure like dealing with like 45 servers and it really wasn't that bad but yeah i mean I, it would get very difficult if there were like you know thousands of servers i had to manage for sure yeah and so i think yeah i i think edge alone is going to push push this style of infrastructure out um even even more uh, speaking of which by the way like configuration management tools then i mean not so much you wouldn't use ansible or salt or whatever for this case but do you use anything like terraform or cloud formation on aws to deal with like setting up the infrastructure to run nanos.org or Opsity? Uh, no. So, um, you, you know, if, if we dive into all the configuration, uh, configuration management software and you look at, like, what a lot of the scripts actually do, there's a few stanzas where it's like, this is my security group, this is my VPC, uh, that sort of stuff. Um, but after that, there's a lot of, like, on-host customization. You know, everything from setting... I don't know, locales, the time zones, the log rotation to, you know, the half a dozen different application agents that your company has bought that needs to be installed. Um, you, you know, there's, there's so much uh, on instance configuration that's done in those systems. And union kernels are just so dramatically different because again, it's, it's just one application. And so it's, you know, sometimes it helps to think about, it's like, um, not to think of it as a server anymore, but as, as an application. So, you know, people are like, well, how do I SSH into it? It's like, well, how do you SSH into your application? You know, so uh, maybe, maybe think about instrumenting them with uh, Prometheus or think about, you know, shipping your logs to Elastic or, you, you know, what, whatever you want to do. But, you know, a lot of the administration, configuration, all that sort of stuff, just stop thinking about it. 
and and start you know um, having the software do do the work for you basically. So yeah, I think I think there is room for maybe cluster management type of software, but yeah, I I don't know how that will take form, and I guess it'll be interesting to see you know what the community you know responds with in in the future. Um, right right now, it's I mean it's relatively easy to kind of spin up you know a small set of services, and then you know for larger stuff, I, I would assume a lot of that gets plugged into CI/CD workflows. Um, which every company seems to have their own thing. So right. Speaking of which, maybe do you want to go over like what your deployment process is like? Like, you know, going from the code sitting on your dev box to it being live on the internet. Yeah. Well, for for nanos.org, it's um, yeah, it's it's literally like two commands. Um, <laughs> it's uh, you deploy the new one and uh, change out the uh, the C name pretty pretty much. So nanos.org, um, you know, it's uh, using what's it called cloud dns on google um so it's just you know there's some dns provider um and it has i guess an a record pointed at it um and so since it's not even load balanced by the way i mean it's literally just like the smallest instance <laughs> you, you know all we have to do is switch out that um, ip address and and so um, we deploy the new one peanut make sure it's up and then and then we kind of um just switch it out um now you can have software that does this automatically for you, or you could manually do it if it's a small service. Um, but uh, but yeah, and then and then you know, same thing if if you need it load balanced, you know, maybe maybe you stick it into the live pool of instances that are set up, and then um, you spin down the old instances. And so there's we we make use of tagging the instances, um, like uh, it's deployed with a certain tag. Um, maybe the instance has an image name attached to it, so we know which instance is there. Um, so, so we make use of tags uh, quite a bit. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, you could you can take those same concepts and expand them quite a bit. You, you know, for a long time, I I mean, I haven't messed with much of the container ecosystem for a while. But you know, I I wrote like a DNS uh, resolver that used uh, serve records. Um, long time ago to kind of round robin out new instances and so forth. Same concepts would apply there. Okay. Quick question though about the DNS updates. You mentioned like, you know, IP addresses. Does Google Cloud give you like a floating IP? Like normally like an IP address, like a DNS change, like an A record change, you have to sit there and twiddle your thumbs for like maybe an hour. Maybe it's like 10 minutes, but maybe also it's like a day and a half. Um, yeah, so that kind of depends. Um, you can set the TTLs on, on your DNS to like five minutes or two minutes, stuff like that. And so, um, the DNS change can happen extremely quickly for me. It's, yeah, it's usually just a couple minutes. Um, you know, each provider is different, uh, on Google, their, um, elastic IPs are, don't quote me, but I think they're free if you're using them. And, you know, they, they cost money if you have a bunch and you're not using them. Uh, I'm not sure. Uh, it, it, and, and, and you don't have to use Elastic, by the way. Like, uh, every instance has a public IP. It can be totally ephemeral and, and you can still use it, right? Uh, having, having the Elastic means you don't really have to update the DNS records anymore. And so if you're using Elastic, then you just point it at the new instance. And so that might route you around... Um, you know, DNS that has TTL that's, you know, two days or whatever it is. Um, but so, so it's, 
it, it's one of those things where it's uh you know to each their own um there's there's a thousand different ways to skin the cat um that's just the way that we're comfortable using i i, I don't think there's necessarily like a right or wrong way of doing this it's you know just just different methods yeah so stepping back maybe even more in this deployment process do you want to walk us through your ci pipeline if you even have one like do you work on a feature branch and then push it up to GitHub and then merge it in and then da, 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 da. like, is that automated? Is that manual? Yeah. Well, so, so we can talk about C2 um, because like nanos.org is so small. I mean, like it doesn't have any, doesn't really have any functionality. Right. <laughs> so it's, uh, but, uh, but C2 does have functionality. So yeah, you know, there's like tests and so forth and you know, the developer comes along and um, wants new feature code added. And so he has tests there and, um, it gets some code review done, uh, make sure nothing's too crazy and the test pass, it gets merged. And then, um, we don't, we're not doing continuous deployment with that yet. Um, what we do have is a concept of a nightly release. Um, and so, um, whatever's in master, there's a new nightly build for it, um, each night. And that's, you know, that's mainly because, um, that's going out to end users that, uh, we don't, we don't track them. We don't know where they're deploying them. We don't even care, really. Um, it's typically going behind the firewall on their own infrastructure. Um, they don't want us, you know, peeking around and sending stuff back home and all that sort of stuff. So um, none of that is there. Uh, and so we basically cut releases whenever we feel like it. And then uh, otherwise, you know, they have a nightly build. And that just allows us to kind of know what, what is being released when it's a little bit different than like say a hosted service where you have full control over everything. And so in that case, that makes a lot more sense to continuously deploy because you can just, you can just rewrite whatever is messed up. Right. Um, but, uh, but, but that's not the case when somebody is running their entire infrastructure and you don't, you, you can't even see it. Right. So it's a little bit different um, release cycle for that. You know, on that note, we do have kind of a new service coming online that is hosted. And so in that case, that would be, you know, more continuous delivery there. Right. And for the current day, do you push this all up to GitHub and then use GitHub Actions at all or no? Um, yeah, we, we haven't made use of any GitHub Actions. We have Circle CI for most of our um, CI stuff. And then there's also some other, by nature of what we do, we actually have our own uh, CI as well. Uh, just to provide some detail on that, um, Mac builds, for instance, isn't something that's super easy to do CI for. ARM is another thing that's not super easy to do CI for. Uh, we, we didn't even discuss this, but uh, we, uh, we added support to run this stuff on Raspberry Pi 4 uh, recently. So Raspberry Pi 4 is uh, you know one of the first um, little hobbyist uh, devices that can support virtualized workloads. And so that's that's a very key thing. The 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 keyword virtualized. You know, most of those devices like Arduino's and so so forth, um, they don't have enough resources to actually run virtualized workloads. Um, a B, many of them are like 32-bit, which we don't support 32-bit whatsoever. We're 64-bit only, and and we will never support 32-bit. And so. Uh, so you know stuff like that. We kind of need our own CI service that we built, and then. The other thing is nobody's like really made virtualization CI uh, services. What, what I mean by that is like there's little, again, little quirks that we have 
um, because we're spinning up VMs that we don't find unless we're actually spinning up the VMs. And so, so it's very important for us to test the, uh, the, uh, the, those VM workloads as well. And that's not something that we can actually do on any of the hosted uh, CI services out there. Yeah, because usually most of them, they just give you like Ubuntu 2004 LTS as your base OS to work off of, and it's going to be... Yeah, a, a lot of them are even stuffing things into Docker containers, which which makes things even worse. And it, it, I, I guess on that note is it's not just the fact that it's a VM that we're wanting to spin up, but there's also like performance regression tests too. You know, one of our key selling points is like, we can go out there and be like, hey, our Go web servers run like two times, three times as fast as as stock Linux. And so, you know, to keep those claims going, like we, we need performance regression to to understand that. And it's it's also just, you know, internally we're trying to benchmark and, and figure out like when we heavily modify something. I mean, if you look if you go look at the nano source code, which is written in C by the way. And just like look at some of the data structures that we use and some of the, the methods that we use, you know, something one of those out could take a serious performance hit if we're not paying attention to it. So, you know, we sub out like a range map for red black tree or something like that. I mean, like if you're not measuring it all the time every as part of your CI, you're just you're going to get screwed. So um, so yeah, there's things like that. Right. Now, I don't know why, but talking about your deployment process made me think of a question I should have asked before. If all of this is dependent on using cloud infrastructure for various things, like what does the develop, development experience even look like? Like, is this all localized running on your Mac or within WSL on Windows or in native Linux? Or do you have to like actually call out and create cloud infrastructure to even run stuff in dev? No. Um, so, so I guess there's two parts uh, to this question. A is, is that we don't necessarily advocate running these things as unikernels locally. Um, I know that's super popular in container land, but the only reason that that is in container land is because um, there was, you know, a ton of developers out there that were using Macs and, you know, running OSX and not Linux. And so when they were trying to run these workloads, um, they had to have that Linux environment. And so, you know, I, I don't know what the case is today, but I used to walk by people's desks and you would it'd be like a helicopter taking off you know <laughs> so it's like, um, we don't necessarily advocate that at all um, however you can run ops on wsl you can run it on mac you can run it on linux it's by far fastest on linux namely because we know that you're going to have access to hardware acceleration um, but on mac i mean it's it's pretty moderately fast too and it doesn't sound like a helicopter taking off either we use the HVF, which is the hardware acceleration um, found on Mac. Um, WSL, uh, there is no acceleration because they're already virtualized inside. So that's the Windows subsub subsystem for Linux. Um, and so uh, WSL2 apparently is a lot faster than than one was. Um, I'm, I haven't used Windows forever, but uh, you know we also have access to Hyper-V um, on Windows too. So, so there's that. But yeah, I mean, you can run like multiple services locally as unikernels. We're, we're not saying you can't. Um, it's just not something that we would necessarily advocate you do. Okay. Not, not today anyways. Maybe maybe later on, you know, if, if people start using all these, uh, you know, like the new Apple M1 type of things that are based on ARM, then that might become more of a reality because now you're on a different architecture. And so I think 
honestly, I think that's going to throw a bunch of monkey wrenches into the whole, <laughs> into the whole deployment mess. Um, simply because there's, you know, nobody really deploy, deploys the arm today. So it'll be interesting to see how that ecosystem develops. Yeah, that is an interesting time we live in because it almost feels like I'm not super into hardware stuff, but it's like that day and age, like switching from 32 bit to 64 bit, like switching a whole entire CPU architecture is, I guess, similar, kind of. That's, yeah, it's it's very much the same. I mean, who knows? Maybe maybe we all start deploying to ARM servers, but I don't, I don't necessarily see that anytime soon. There's a lot of software out there that is dependent upon x86. And um, yeah, I, I just don't really see it, to be honest. Not anytime soon. So going back to uh, your deployment process, you know, you kind of hinted at how, how you might deal with secrets to some degree, like mounting in a, you know, an EBS or a drive somewhere that you can get access to them. Like, how do you deal with secrets for all of your services that you're running? Yeah, I mean, there's, again, there's like a half a dozen different ways to um, deal with it. You know, at the simplest layer, um, ops has ways of injecting environment variables into your application. So you can just inject them in at build time if, if you want like the dead easy way of doing it. You could talk to a secret store, you know, uh, like a uh, vault or something like that. You can, you can do that. You can uh, do the volume mounting rotation. That I, I would not really recommend that for anybody who doesn't already have that system in place or if you're not a large organization. That's just, that adds more complexity and so forth. And so it's, it's really only something where, you, you know, if you have the organization need and demand for it, I would go down that route. Um, but yeah, there's, there's many different ways. I mean, if you uh, want to laugh aloud security, you could just hard code it. <laughs> not, not, not recommended, um, you know, because you could probably just yank that out with strings or something. But uh, yeah, there's, there's, there's lots of different methods. Um, many of them the exact same way as, as you would do now. Right. Like a kink go too wrong, I guess, with environment variables, because at least in dev, if you happen to be running, you know, straight up on your dev box or using Docker, like there's mechanisms to load in environment variables pretty easily. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, there's, there's, there's lots of different, different ways of doing it. So for these sites, then uh, do you do any type of uh, like disaster recovery? Like, do you do any backups for any of any files or anything that's like that key value store or whatever? Um, so, you know, for databases, obviously, uh, we do like backups and, you know, depending on the severity of, um, what exactly you're trying to back up, you could do everything from replication to, you know, sharding out your different, uh, different stores. Um, it, it, it really depends on like your, your demand of, um, how, how, how fine grain you need your backups and, you know, how well can you recover Replication is probably like the easiest answer to, I would say, medium-sized businesses' problems. You know, if an instance dies, who cares? Just let it fall over to to the other instance. Yeah, for for like the C two stuff, I mean, that just uh, you can back that up to uh, like an S three bucket if you wanted to, because it's just configuration um, related stuff there. So that's like, there's really nothing there. Yeah, I mean, it it, it just kind of depends on what your needs are. Okay. What about things like dealing with logs? Do you have them shipped out to like a different service so you can look at them? That's a pretty good question, actually. Glad you brought that up. So yeah, in general, there's there's two ways of dealing with logs. One is that you don't care about them. And so in that case, um, you can continue to write to a log file. And we have ways of um, piping stuff out through the serial console. However, the serial console can be slow. So if you do care about logs and um, you expect to have 
lots of them that you want to look at, then we suggest, you know, piping that via syslog to, you know, Elastic or Splunk or, uh, uh, you know, uh, any of any of the logging services out there. There's um, there's quite a few out there. And I think I think if you're already using one, I would just keep using that same one. Right. So like mechanisms are in place where it's not hard to get those logs out. Yeah, yeah. In fact, I, I I even wrote like a little blog post about this on our develop developer blog just to kind of show a proof of you know uh, example going out to paper trail. Um, so it's a uh, yeah. It it really comes down to do you actually look at logs? <laughs> for for some people, the answer is no, which is fine. And and for other people, they want like a proper logging solution, and that's totally fine too. And uh, you know you ship it out to whatever that solution is. Because most of the people who actually do care about that, they already have existing services that they use for it. So Right. Yeah, my philosophy has always been like, notif- notify me when things go wrong. I kind of like having the logs there, but eh, I kind of just don't look at them unless like I really have to. Yeah. So, I mean, like on nanos.org, like we just use the built-in serial stuff. And that suffices because we don't really do anything. You know, it, it gives us enough information. And we can always instrument to, you know, a half a dozen different ways to look at other stuff. One of the services, I, I kind of mentioned this, that we're bringing on board is called Radar. And I don't know, another month or so that should be out. But basically that does everything from like, it collects crash dumps, both user and kernel. It collects uh, memory metrics, like in-app mem- memory metrics, um, you know, tracks booting, all that good stuff. So it's, it's kind of like little all-in-one APM solution, but it's really tuned for uh, nanos. Now, having said that, if you're using like New Relic or Datadog or any of those other APM providers, those work perfectly fine too. So it's uh, it's not an either or. So that baked in like APM solution you're going for, will that be available to anyone using the current tool when it's shipped out? Yeah. Yeah. So that'll be out there. And, you know, part of that was us wanting, <laughs> part of that was us wanting more telemetry because we don't have any telemetry turned on. Um, we're, we're kind of a users should have their privacy um, type of attitude. Um, and so, uh, you know, part of that was just, you know, for those that do want to provide that information, we can have it. And and then for those that want the extra stuff, they could have it too. Because, you, you know, that is one of those, one of those paradigm questions that people have when they first come to us, like, well, how do I know my app is actually working, blah, blah, blah. And because they're very used to SSHing in and like running top or running PSOX or LSOF or, you know, any thousands of tools out there. And, you know, all that stuff, you, you access all that information differently. You know, like if we just take the most common example of running PSOX, you know, well, what does PS do? It shows you the list of running processes. Um, well, in this example, we only have one, right? <laughs> so, yeah. so, so that's, uh, that's all we have. Now, if we look at LSOF, you know, list the open files for a process, um, y- you know, the most common case that I would have in the past was uh, something is creating too many files and all of a sudden I can't SSH into the system because there's too many files open and I didn't raise my U limits and all this other stuff. And, and so then I finally managed to get in the instance and I'm like, I wonder which which process is creating all these files, and so you uh, you figure that out. And so what we're getting at is a lot of these tools that are available in that manner, they're all under the assumption that there's multiple users and multiple processes on the system, 
And that's just not the case in the unikernel system. Again, it's, it's, you have to stop thinking it as the server and more of just like this application and then instrument um, according to that instead. Right. So, uh, so that's, that's kind of what we're doing. And, you know, it's, uh, that's, and that's, that's what happens. So. Okay. So what about like getting notified of errors? Like if, if your app throws a 500, you know, at the web server level, do you get notified in any way from that? Like an email or through Slack or something else? Yeah. So, so yeah, you can, um, you can hook in your new relic or whatever and hook that up to PagerDuty and, um, you know, you can do it that way. I know some people instrument their error codes against, you know, stuff like traffic, uh, and, you know, other tools in the service mesh space. It, it really depends on like what you're using now, how much, uh, how much activity you have, you know, how much you want to kind of invest in, in monitoring that. Um, but essentially you get to use all the, all the same tooling and so forth, uh, that, that you already have. Right. What about in your case, do you use a specific service or no? So right now we don't really have any hosted services that, that we actually sell. Um, so we don't really have a big need to monitor that. We have like simple uptime, um, monitoring for all of our sites just to make sure that, you know, if there is a problem, um, we can, we can look at it. And, and then, you know, we also dog food things like memory metrics against uh, a couple of different sites just to just to kind of uh, see how, how our own code is kind of responding there. But it's, you know, it's, it's different because it's for internal use versus, you know, like a hosted service that that somebody needs to kind of monitor and so forth. I'm, I'm sure that will change when when this new service comes out, um, this radar service, and, and, and then it'll be there'll be more onus on us to kind of look at that. Right. Now for that uptime monitoring, do you use uptime robot or pingdom or something else? Well, let's see. It's listed. I, sh- I should know this off the top of my head, but, uh, so up down is listing some of these, uh, sites up down.io five, five bucks gets you, uh, quite, quite a few checks for like, I don't know, six months or something like that. Now, are there any other, uh, SaaS apps that you might be using for this? Like in the one app that handles the subscriptions, do you like, throw emails out like through a transactional email service or no um yeah so uh emails through nano they go through uh they go through mailgun um which i think we're on the free tier there so that's that's one of those things that you know you you have to breach like i don't know a thousand emails a month or something like that and that's really the only thing we use it for so uh we're not really sending that many emails out right did you pick them because of their generous free plan or did you have prior experience probably both <laughs> it's uh I, I i've used most of those you know um in in the past but uh yeah probably the generous free plan was probably one of the deciding factors there right yeah it always helps when you don't have to pay for something per month right <laughs> definitely so what would you say some of your best tips and lessons learned are from building all these different platforms and you know just this tool in general yeah, and I, I think it really sums up the philosophy too. Is just the the kiss principle: keep it simple. So it's uh, you know, in the past like five to I don't know ten years now, almost I've just seen a lot of people that work in infrastructure go to lengths to add as much complexity as possible, um, which I I just think it's the wrong route for for most companies. Um, yeah, you know, if you're a DevOps person here in San Francisco. You can ask like 180, 190 and not even code really. And that's, that's kind of the state of things. 
Um, and so it's, it's, it's kind of crazy, like the, the amount of sheer complexity that the infrastructure ecosystem has tacked on. And, and just to, just to be clear, this is coming from a guy that got Slackware floppies in like 94 and has, has been kind of running Linux since, you, you know, maybe I have a different viewpoint, uh, on, on certain things, but I, I, in general, I think infrastructure is super, super complicated for no reason. Um, and I, I think a lot of things could be a lot easier. And, and part of that is just getting the right tool for the right job and then, you know, uh, just just doing what's necessary and going from there. Right. Yeah, I'm not quite that old when it comes to using Linux for the last like 20 years or whatever. But I do agree that infrastructure nowadays is pretty crazy. Like it, uh, like in the early 2000s, it was like, OK, take PHP file, drop it into server, done. And now it's like, I guess you can technically do that today, too. But I feel like developers want to be developers. And now it's like we have 400 other things that you need to learn about. Right. Well, that's, I mean, that's the other thing is like, I'm not advocating somebody, you know, FTP some crap onto a server. <laughs> Forget about that. I'm not, I'm not saying that. Um, it's just, you know, there's, there's, there's a lot of stuff, especially like most businesses, you know, even though a lot of businesses are software businesses today, um, you know, it's still not really their core, like value prop to their end customers. I mean, if you're, let's take the dog walking app, you know, like the whole core of that business is for owners to have, you know, someone come and like walk their dog cause they're, I don't know, on a vacation or something, but that's, that's the value. It's, it's not like building the most complex infrastructure to like find, you know, the, the hottest new technology and, and so forth. And so. Um, there's just a lot of, um, complexity out there. And part of that is crappy tools, um, which we're trying to fix, but also part of it is, you know, just this, I don't know, this insatiable need to, to add on more stuff. And I think, you know, also on that note, there's, you know, there's a lot of companies out there that they realize they need software chops and people who can sling code around and so forth but they don't really know how to go about finding those people. And so people just keep on adding more complexity to the software and, you know, employees churn out, you know, if, if you're at a company for like two years and then you go to another one, you know, who cares about the mess I left behind? <laughs> so That really sums uh, it up. That's very real. For sure. And by the way, since uh, you're kind of like a grizzled Linux veteran, have you ever happened to look into an alternative to Linux from way back in the day, like Plan 9, the operating system? Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I've ran Plan 9 and, you know, I've, I used to be at OBSD Zlot 2 from the BSD kind of world. And, um, you know, I've, I, I've always kind of had an interest in other operating systems. You know, a uh, long time ago, you know, BIOS was uh, something that we all kind of liked and so forth. Uh, you know, it's, it's interesting that you bring up Plan 9 because uh, Rob Pike, um, who's involved in Go and, and Plan 9, you know, he had this kind of scathing paper from, I don't know what year, like 2002, 2003, maybe it was even 2001, where he said like operating system, you know, research is dead. <laughs> like, like you just kind of went off on it. And it's interesting because at that time we were actually it's, it's such a fascinating thing because in one way he was correct and the other way he was completely incorrect. Um, because, you know, like Unix was actually put out in the late 60s, early 70s. Okay, so they were working on PDP-7s, PDP-11s back then. That's when Unix came out. And so then like 30 years after that, or sorry, 20 years after that, we have Linus 
and the Unix wars. And so um, the Unix wars, basically all these people had proprietary versions of Unix and they were all suing each other. Um, so like Sco and all these guys. And then Linux comes out and he's like, hey, I have this free you know, Unix-like system. And this is a really important time period because we have the first browsers like Mosaic. We had the first rumblings of the first dot-com boom. So it's a really important time to have a system like that. And we get that massive buildup. And then 10 years later, we have VMware come out. You know, virtualization was a concept that had been around forever, but, you know, they were the first company to like really commercialize it. And so now we can actually split up these, the, these hardware into, um, you know, multiple computers. And then five years after that, we got who used to be the richest man in the world, Jeff Bezos, come out with EC2. And so now we stick an API on top of virtualization. That's effectively what the cloud is, is virtualization with an API. And uh, so, so we had all these changes and yet like, so like 50 years have passed with Unix not changing whatsoever, even though we're living in a completely different world and, and the hardware is different and the way we interact with the software is different. And so, you know, operating system R&D has just been begging and begging and begging to be dealt with. And I think one of the reasons why it just hasn't been is, um, you know, it's a very expensive, time-consuming, talent-consuming um, operation. So it's, uh, you know, people look at Red Hat, it's like, yeah, but Red Hat was really just the support arm for, for Linux. I mean, so it's, uh, there's, there's a lot of opportunity, I think, in this, in this space for people who are interested. You know, while we're focused on the core kernel and providing kind of that core functionality, what's really, really interesting in my view about Unikernels is it's such an ecosystem game changer. You can come in and be like, hey, we're the MySQL, new MySQL for Unikernels. We're automatically 10 times better, 10 times faster, blah, blah, blah. We're the new Redis for Unikernels. We're the new Nginx for Unikernels. We're the blah, blah, blah. Like all these different pieces of software the languages themselves, you know, your Rubies and Pythons and stuff, all this could be rewritten so much better um, in a unikernel paradigm. And people can build just entire empires just based on these individual projects. And that's what's really interesting is it's such a huge new ecosystem that's opening up. Right. And I guess before we wrap this up, then just to be super clear on the way things are today, like if I want, wanted to run a Rails app or a Flask app in a unikernel uh, space, I wouldn't need to rewrite my whole app, right? Like it's going to work just as it is now. Right. So, so yeah, to, to kind of touch on that, there's largely two different variants of unikernels out there. You know, I mentioned there's like 11 or 12 different um, implementations. Um, so some of them are language specific. So you look at probably the most well-known one out there called Mirage. That's based on OCaml. Uh, well, in America, that's kind of a problem because I can name about two companies that use OCaml. Jane Street would be one of them. Um, but, uh, you know, and then there's like HalVM for Haskell, and then there's Erlang on Zen. There's, there's all these different one-offs. Um, then you have what we call the POSIX variety. And so that's your OSVs, your RUP runs, um, Nanos belongs in that category. And those basically say um, no application rewriting because that's just, that's a dead end, A. And B, like, it just needs to work. Um, if I deploy it to Linux, it works. So why not just deploy it to the Unicron and, and it works? And a lot of people ran into that problem because they were taking kind of the no syscall approach, which basically subs out libc 
and um, rewrites the syscalls. That gives them a tiny performance boost, but in our opinion, it wasn't enough to kind of force that rewriting. And so what we said was, um, you know what, if you want to link to glibc, great. 99% of applications are made that way. If you want to link to one of the altlibcs, like muzzle or something like that, that's fine too. Just be aware that, you know, of what you're getting into. You might um, have some safety constraints drop like ASLR. You might have certain syscalls that are not really supported. And that's the same thing if you're using something like Alpine. I mean, you run into these exact same sort of constraints. So it's, it's, it's definitely an option, but, um, you know, it's not something that we would advocate for the normal user. The normal user, we say, whatever your application is on Linux today, whether it's libc 2.this or, you know, 2.3 or whatever, um, just keep it as is. Ops will look at the application, see all the libraries that it's linked to, and then load those up onto your file system and, and you're off to the races and, and there's absolutely no application rewriting whatsoever. Um, and that's, that's kind of the, the standard that we want to strive for. So you can, you can have your cake and eat it too, basically. Yeah, like that second part just answered another question I had in my mind. Like, what if my application does some image processing and I need to apt install image magic? You know, not apt because it was not running Debian under the hood, but like you can get that dependency into the system to where at the app level, my code wouldn't need to change. Yeah, so when you install, like you do apt-get uh, install libmagic 1.5 dev or whatever the hell it is. Um, you know, if you look at the package that it's installing, it's installing some libraries for your system, some, you know, some man pages, some, maybe there's some user local, whatever in there, icons or something, I don't know. Most important part are those libraries. And so if Ruby is, um, going to load the lib image magic library, you know, it, it needs to be available on that file system. And so um, what, what we do is we just stick it on the file system when you build that, uh, when you build that image. And so you, you touched on a little, <laughs> you, you touched on a, a little uh, pet peeve of mine was um, the state of our libraries out there in Linux is horrendous. Um, so, so you look at the two most popular libraries out there, um, not by name, but just by usage, and it's libxml and libxslt. Why are they uh, so used? Because they happen to be linked into every single um, language out there. You know, your, your Rubies and Pythons and Nodes, all of them use these libraries. Well, guess what's in libxml? An FTP server. Like, just sitting there, doing, doing nothing, but it's there. And, uh, you know, you look at some of these other libraries, and they haven't had updates for 20 years. Like literally 20 years have passed and not a single update. And yet just yesterday, we, we see the new pseudo vertibility that's been sitting there giving you root privileges for nine years now. That's the state of the open source ecosystem. Um, PKH uh, wrote a really awesome article about this, I don't know, 10 years ago, uh, where I forgot what the title was. It was, it was, it was basically refuting RMS's uh, cathedral and, uh, and the bazaar. And basically he was saying, you know, the bazaar is great. However, like there's just all these different one-offs out there. And it's, it's this, you know, the state of the ecosystems kind of in shambles. And unikernels kind of allow us to revisit some of the software that everybody's been linking against and using and allow us to kind of um, revitalize that ecosystem and, and make it a lot stronger and a lot better. Um, because the same thing where I was saying you could have 
a better MySQL and a better Redis and all this stuff, the exact same thing exists for these libraries. A lot of these libraries, maybe you need like 5% of that library versus the whole, you know, the, the whole kitchen sink. Um, and so that's, that's another interesting thing that I see in the Unicron ecosystem is this, this new approach to managing some of those. Everybody's used to the NPM dependency graph. And we, we spoke earlier about the, the Go dependencies and all that stuff. It's, it's the exact same thing with these libraries though. Right. Yeah, I remember that article from way back, the bizarre one. I'll make sure to drop that one into the show notes. So Ian, thanks a lot for coming on the Running In Production podcast. It was really great having you on. For sure. Thanks for having me, man. Yeah. So before we wrap this up, uh, do you want to share any links to your site, Twitter, GitHub profile, anything like that? Yeah. I mean, if if you guys are interested, uh, obviously all the codes on GitHub, um, but go to nanos.org or ops.city and you can you can download um, these tools and boot up your first Unicron in like a minute. You know, if you have questions, comments, issues, or whatever, just check out GitHub and hit us up. Awesome. And on that note, to everyone listening, thanks for tuning in, and I'll see you in the next one. You've been listening to the Running In Production podcast. You can find a full archive of the show at runninginproduction.com. Also, don't forget to subscribe using your favorite podcast player or leave a review if you like the show.